Well, as you, uh, as you wrap up saying hello and um, being peaceable amongst yourselves, <clears throat> I'm going to read the passage of Scripture that Tony will be referencing in his sermon this morning. It comes from Galatians chapter 4. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. This summer we've been looking at um, Paul's letter to the Galatians. This was a circular letter written to a group of churches that Paul had planted, that he had established, in what is today central Turkey. And it is actually probably the first writing in the New Testament. This is very early. And it addresses one of the first conflicts in the early church, a debate or a dispute between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Jesus was Jewish, all the original leaders of the church were Jewish, the apostles were Jewish. They brought this Jewish culture with them into the church. And some of them were saying to the Gentile Christians, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. To be a real Christian, you need also to become Jewish. Paul, himself a Jew, is adamant that all you need is Christ alone. Only Jesus doesn't matter your background, your history, who you are, which people group, your ethnicity, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, all you need is Jesus. And so the letter to the Galatians is a passionate, and Paul is very passionate in this uh, letter. Oftentimes he has these run-on sentences as he spews out words. Paul is passionately defending the principle of the gospel, freedom in Jesus Christ alone. It's what it's all about, this letter, and it is a a great place to go to if you want to understand the gospel and Christian freedom. And you see it right here in the first verse that we're looking at here, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? The law, the law Paul is referring to is the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai, and he comes down the the mountain and he gives it to Israel. You can sort of summarize it in the Ten Commandments. How to relate to God, how people should relate to each other to become a holy people. And those under the law, he's referring to Israel. 
the nation that was created by God's law. And so Paul here is explicitly challenging those who would claim that to be a good Christian, you also need to be a good Jew and to live under the law. That's the essential argument. So let's look at Paul's argument. For it is written, he's referring back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 16. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. Now this is a bold move by, by Paul. He's referring back to the founding story of Israel, how they understand themselves. And so to understand his argument, we have to look at that story. And I'm going to read it to you. Uh, if you have a Bible... This is Genesis 16. It's the whole chapter. And it's the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave, Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. Now we've seen before, when we looked at the idea of covenant, that God had made a covenant with Abraham. And he had promised him that through his descendants, God would bless the world. You can't have descendants unless you have children. And so God had promised children to Abraham and Sarah. That was his promise. And what we see here is their doubts. The first doubts that they can trust God's promise. The first crack in Abraham's faith. After all, Abraham is the man of faith. It is his faith on which God decided to redeem the world. Yet here they doubt. Worse than that, they come up with a project that will be in competition with God's plan. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. What a tangled web. God had a plan for Abraham and for Sarah. In fact, it was a big, beautiful plan for the salvation of the whole world. It included Sarah's desire to be a mother. It included children. It included their relationship and gave them a future together. All they had to do is believe. Have faith in God's plan. Have faith 
in God's purpose, have confidence that God was on their side and sought their best. But for Sarah, becoming a mother had become more important than trusting God. More important than God's word, more important than his promise, more powerful than God's plan for her life and his promise to love her. And so look at the result. Rebellion against God's plan results in Sarah becoming a monster, mistreating Hagar. It results in the pregnant Hagar being cast out, so they've lost the child. They've created a a new heir and a new competing bloodline. Human doubt, human faithlessness causes grief. And we see it right here in the founding story. And just as an aside, how much misery, human misery, do you suppose is in the world just because human beings don't trust God's promises? Don't put their faith in him. The answer is easy. All the misery in the world. It was the original sin of Adam and Eve to doubt God's good purpose for their life so that they rebelled against him. And so ask yourself a question when you look at your life. How much of the misery or unhappiness in your life, the dissatisfaction, the lack of being at ease in your own skin and the world, is because you just don't trust God's plan or his promise. The God who rules all the world, who created you and everything, the God who knows what's going to happen in the future, is it any surprise that things fall apart when we don't put our faith in him, believe his promises? But anyway, back to the story. So God had a plan. Human beings are trying to screw it up. But this is the Old Testament God, right? Human beings are messing up. He's going to set them straight. He's going to crack heads and take some names. Let's see how he does it. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my, from my mistress Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. This is a God of grace. You've got to love God. Here... Our human beings screwing up his beautiful plan for the world, being faithless again, rebelling again, and how does he respond? This lost little slave girl, this Egyptian slave girl, pregnant, alone in Israel, how long do you think she had to live? Most people wouldn't even have given her a second glance, and yet God pays attention to her and goes after her and finds her and blesses her. This is a divine courtesy, a generosity beyond anything we can imagine, even with those who rebel, even with those who are faithless, even with those who consider God their enemy. The angel of the Lord also said to her, 
You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He'll be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bia Lahai Roy, and it's still there between Kadesh and Barid. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So Hagar gets blessed. She doesn't get punished. What about Sarah, the instigator? Maybe God is going to do her in. Well, we find out in verse 21 of Genesis, in chapter 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight years old, eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So there's the story, the founding story. We see a God of grace, a God who brings plans of salvation to the world, and we see faithless human beings rebelling, doubting, turning away from God's plan. And yet we see a gracious God continuing to work, not giving up, not going to plan B, but continuing to work through sinful, rebellious, unfaithful human beings, people just like us, by the way. So let's see what Paul is going to do with this story. Remember, he said, verse 22 up here, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. So now we know the two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and we know two women, Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman, and Sarah, Abraham's legal Jewish wife. Uh, they now are both his legal wives, by the way. Verse 23, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a dying divine promise. According to the flesh, it's a, it's a bit of a misleading translation, this word flesh. It doesn't mean lust necessarily. It doesn't mean all of being about the body. It refers more to sort of human existence and will as opposed to God. So what Paul is saying here is that uh, Ishmael was born, or the idea of his birth was cooked up as a human plan. And the contrast here is with the divine plan, the divine promise, 
that God made Abraham that one of his descendants would be start their lineage th- through which the world would be blessed. So you have human meddling creating Ishmael, and you have the divine promise represented in Isaac. And as I say, this is the foundational story, both for Israel, because uh, Isaac's son is Jacob, and Jacob have 12 son, has 12 sons who become the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel and the nation of Israel. And Ishmael is recognized by Arabs as the patriarch of the Arab people. He also has 12 sons, and Mohammed, the prophet who founds Islam, is one of his descendants. So here you have the foundational story of Israel and of all the Arab people. And it's no wonder that there is conflict between them. It starts right here. Notice, by the way, Paul's boldness. He is taking the foundational story of Israel, the Jewish people, and now he's going to invert it. He's going to challenge those Jewish Christians with their own story to challenge their teaching. So let's see how he does that. Verse 24. These things are being taken figuratively. Now, I don't know why they translate it figuratively. The Greek word there is allegoruma. So the Greek word that we get the English word allegory from. So this really is an allegory. And, of course, an allegory is where you take a story and you take the elements of that story, but you assign different meanings to the elements. So different people, different things represent something other than their literal meaning. The women represent two covenants. They are allegories for two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. So Hagar represents or is a metaphor for what happened to Israel at Mount Sinai. What happened? Israel was turned from slavery into a holy nation by God's law. God gives the law to Moses, Moses gives the law to Israel, and Israel becomes the holy nation. Essentially, you summarize that, all that in the Ten Commandments. But as we've seen in previous Sundays, the law itself is not positive. The law is negative. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet. The law in of itself is not positive. It does not tell you how to live, how to be free, how to flourish. It tells you negatively where the landmines are, what not to do if you want to be happy. The law by itself is not a source of freedom. It is the negative freedom of parental control of a child stopping them killing themselves. But it doesn't show a child how to live, how to flourish, how to be who they are meant to be. For that, you need a covenant of grace. 
Verse 26. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. So Paul is associating the law, Mount Sinai, and the old Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, with this negative law, this slavery. He's associating it with slavery. But there is a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, a new relationship or covenant. And Paul is associating that with Sarah, the free woman. He's allegorizing the foundational story, but he's inverting it. Now, Israel, Judaism, is being traced back to Hagar, the slave woman. And Christians, as we'll see, are being traced back to Sarah, the free woman. It's a little hard to see, but for the for Jewish readers, they would have seen it in his next quote, verse 27. For it is written, he's quoting Isaiah here, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. And if you go back to that passage in Isaiah, this is Isaiah speaking to Israel when it's in exile, when it's in Babylon, when it is away from the promised land. And the barren woman is Israel. And Isaiah calls Israel back. And the way he's going to do that is with a promised Messiah. The very verses before this are in chapter 53 of Isaiah. And I'd like to read that to you. And as I read, who do you think this is talking about? Who comes to mind as you hear these words? He grew up before him, God, like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, and nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who does that sound like? Remember, Paul is inverting Israel's founding story. And he is pointing to uh, Hagar, the slave woman, as really the source of what's happening in Israel in the present day. And he's pointing to Sarah as the fulfillment of this promise that a Messiah will come, and that Messiah will be the salvation of Israel, the salvation and blessing to the whole world. 
Look how he pro- look how he finishes. Verse twenty eight. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Brothers and sisters, Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to us. He's talking to the Christians and the churches he planted in Galatia. He's saying that we, just like the descendants of Isaac, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we are the result of God's promise to Abraham that he would bless the world through a descendant of Abraham. And we are the fulfillment of that promise. Verse 29. At that time, the son, born according to the flesh, persecuted the son, born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. If you read back in Genesis, Ishmael, the firstborn, persecuted Isaac, the secondborn. And a lot of the conflict in Genesis, arises from that source. But notice what Paul says. It is the same now. He's talking about the conflict in the church, his Galatian churches, but really a conflict that has stayed with us. What is that conflict? John Stott puts it this way. The persecution of the true church is not always by the world, who are strangers, but by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. It has always been so. The Lord Jesus was bitterly opposed, rejected, mocked, and condemned by his own nation. The fiercest opponents of the Apostle Paul were the official religious leaders. He's talking about the, uh, the leaders back in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians. The greatest enemies of evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, but the church, the establishment, the hierarchy. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. What is he talking about? Now remember, Galatians is a letter by Paul the founder of the uh, church, the ministry to the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. And right at the very beginning, there is a conflict. And what is the conflict? It's a conflict between those who put their faith in Jesus alone and those who say, that is not enough. You've also got to do other stuff to prove that you're a real Christian. And that struggle that started right at the foundation of the church continues today. Paul predicts it here, and you know yourself, it happens today. At the center of Christian faith, at the center of the Christian church, is a struggle. What is that struggle? It's a struggle between those who accept humbly that they are sinners and need Christ, Christ's salvation and sacrifice, and those who just can't believe that that's enough. Those who believe you've got to do something else. It's too easy just to be forgiven. Grace is great, but show me what I have to do. How can I earn some credit? How can I take control of my own salvation? How can I make sure that God lives up to his promises? 
It's the voice that says, sure, God loves you. But what have you done for him lately? That says, God helps those who help themselves, which is found nowhere in the Bible. It is the lack of faith in God's promises and God's plan that prevents you and I and all Christians from giving the whole, the whole self to God, every part of who we are, a whole life and a whole future. It's the part of us that just can't receive God's grace. It's just too intangible. It can't be that easy. Sure, Christ went to the cross for me, but what do I have to do? How can I prove myself worthy of that sacrifice? What it is, and C.S. Lewis points this out, is pride. We cannot accept the fact that we are so helpless. What can we do? What should we do? What is our contribution? We cannot accept that from God's perspective, we are just children, helpless. That he, like a parent, like a father, has to do all the work and save us. Save us from ourselves. Look at verse 30. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Remember, Paul associates the slave woman, Hagar, with Mount Sinai, with the law of Moses, with all the rituals and ceremonies and practices of religion. All the things that people do to prove themselves to God. And Paul is saying here, don't, that's not it. That's not Christianity. That is, thou shalt not. But Christianity is God saying, I will. I will love you. I will take care of you. I will pay whatever needs to be paid. I will be with you, though you walk through the shadow of the valley of death. I will be by your side. I will be there for you. I will be your father, and you will be my child, and nobody will ever take you from my hand. That's what true Christian freedom looks like. Trusting those promises. Living as if that is really true. You know, we're going to end, well, in our offertory today, right before we go to the Lord's Supper, with a beautiful song, Knocked Off My High Horse. And it is all about Paul. And it's all about how Paul came to this realization. That it was not about him and what he did. It was about God and what he had done. All Paul had to do was to be knocked off his horse. To have his illusions of importance shattered. So he could recognize that it's all about God. That it is about God's will and not my will. That it is about Jesus on the cross and not what I have done. I'm going to do something dangerous now. It's something I promise I've never do, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
I was told at seminary that you never give an illustration about pets because everybody has a different understanding of pets, and so it's dangerous. But here we go. Caesar Milan said that one of the worst things that you can do with your dog is to be passive. Because what happens is that your dog, some of whom are alphas, used to taking charge, being the leader of the pack, if they see you being passive, they will try to take the lead. They'll try to run the show. They'll, ha they'll try to decide what to do. The trouble is that dogs don't understand the human world. They don't understand doors. They don't understand traffic. They don't understand much about how the world works. And so when they try to take charge, it doesn't work. And the dog freaks out and becomes neurotic, and it's a disaster. So here's the illustration, allegory. Dogs and human beings. God and his children. Who understands the world? You or God? Who knows how your life should run? You or God? If you try to run the show, you're going to become like one of those alpha dogs who becomes neurotic. Because it's just too big. You're going to screw up. You do not have the control that you think you do, and you're not nearly as smart as you need to be. But if you believe the Bible and Christianity, and you can trust that God is on his throne, and the world and your life is unfolding as it should, then you can relax. You don't have to run the show. It's not all about you. You can start to experience what it means to be a child again, to be led, to learn under the tutelage of someone who loves you like a father, to be free in a world made safe by the creator of heaven and earth. That is true freedom. That is what Paul is calling us to right here. Trust God, believe his word, know that he loves you, and you'll be free. That's the Christian gospel. Let's pray right now. Gracious Father, we thank you that in Christ you have done everything that needs to be done. You have paid the price, a price that we could not pay. You have, in him, revealed yourself and your love to us. Help us, Lord, trust you. Protect us from pride. Help us to be humble. Do away with our illusions about our own self-importance. And help us, Lord, receive your peace and your love. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.